We're moving verse by verse through the first and second letters to the Thessalonians. So uh, if you are new to these books or new to us, we are all the way in chapter 5. We are dealing with a topic called the Day of the Lord. So let's open our Bibles there or open a device that you are, can look on. And once you have the text, as we always do, we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. First Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Seven. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or sleep, asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. The day of the Lord. We're going to take two messages to deal with the content of these 11 verses because it is a very in-depth topic. And it's some that uh, I would imagine just looking out at you and realizing we have a live stream uh, audience or congregation with us today that you may have never even heard this phrase before the day of the Lord. Some of you have heard it. Some of you have studied it. It's actually a topic addressed by at least eight Old Testament authors, and it includes authors like Malachi and Haggai and Isaiah. And it is a day, not a literal 24-hour day, but, but the day of the Lord, when the Lord does two primary things in an area of study known as eschatology. The eschaton is simply a Greek word which means the things concerning the last days. So if you've ever studied eschatology or things related to the last days, this is the topic that we're dealing with right now. And this specific area of study or this specific topic is God's day, the day of the Lord. And I was thinking as we were coming into this message, and we're going to have a chance to take communion at the end of this, I wrote in my notes that he loved us, Jesus came to die for us, went to prepare a place for us, and is coming again to get us. <laughs> That's pretty cool, isn't it? Pretty comprehensive. His great love for us. He saw our need, so he came and lived among us. He died so that we could be saved. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And just like in that bride imagery, he paid the dowry with his blood, went to prepare a place in his father's house for you and me. And then he's going to come and get us 
and bring us to that place. And that is a beautiful, comprehensive look at the beauty of the gospel. And that's how much you and I are loved. But in the day of the Lord, there's something else. And here's what it is. It's a day of judgment. And while it does include the idea of rescue, it also has the idea of wrath. And that is the proper order, by the way. There will be a rescue of God's people and then a wrath that is poured out. So if you're taking notes with us, the day of the Lord has those two components of rescue and wrath. A little bit from my notes. The day of the Lord is a special day at the end of time when God's will and purpose for mankind and his world will be fulfilled. And it is an Old Testament and New Testament concept when Yahweh would vindicate his righteous cause and execute impartial judgment. In early Christian usage, it was the acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. Jesus was viewed as the Kyrios, or Lord, whose day it was. Hence, in addition to being called the day of the Lord, it is also called the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6, the day of our Lord Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1.14, and the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.8. So the day of the Lord, if you think about uh, Jesus being Lord, is the time of his return. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is coming again. And John 5 tells us that all judgment has been given to the Son. That he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. At his appearing, and his appearing is called for believers, Titus 2.13, the blessed hope. It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is our hope, but it is the world's judgment. And that's why it's important for us to understand this concept and get right with God. We should note that the day of the Lord does include teaching that connects deliverance. This is one passage I'll give to you. It's Joel chapter 2. 31 and 32, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Joel is one of the authors that mentions the day of the Lord. And it will come about that whoever, Joel 2.32, calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, many of us have learned the Romans Road, and the Romans Road includes Romans 10, 9, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But interestingly enough, that verse is set in the context of Joel 2 and the return of the Lord or the day of the Lord. And so to call upon the Lord is to ask him for deliverance, is to ask him for rescue. And essentially, salvation is rescue from God's wrath. So the day of the Lord will be the realization of God's wrath, and salvation is to be saved from God's wrath. So sometimes when we say, are you saved, brother? Are you saved, sister? You have to ask the question, what are you saved from? And the truth is, you're saved from the consequences of your sin if you're in Christ and you're saved from the wrath of God. We look around our world right now, and I know a lot of people have been asking things about the last days uh, the United States has you know, pretty much gone crazy in the last six months. There's all kinds of stuff going on, and people are asking, is this the end of the world? People were asking that at the beginning of the COVID 
you know, 19 outbreak because it was a worldwide outbreak. I think the only continent that it didn't affect was Antarctica. It's everywhere. And especially at the beginning, I think a lot of people were looking at those charts from Johns Hopkins and, and you're seeing the red, you know, uh, circles all over the map. And it's, it's like nerve wracking. You're like, man, the, there's a counter and more and more people perishing. And it's just a scary, scary thing. And then we've had other things going on, of course, I don't have to tell you about in our own nation and for that matter, all around the world. What do we do? Is this world sliding into a chaos that will lead to the second coming of Jesus Christ? Perhaps. Will we see it in our lifetime? Maybe. But I don't know. And that's what Paul is going to say in verse 1. He's going to say, and this is a continuation, by the way, of what we saw in chapter 4. Let me remind you, we looked at the rapture in chapter 4, and it says in verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's your resurrection. Then we who are alive and remain, here's our rapture, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Those are glory clouds and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, in light of this truth, truth, comfort one another with these words. Keep reading. There's no chapter breaks in the original letter. They were added later to help us navigate the Bible. Now, as to the times and epics, brethren, as it relates to the parousia, the, that's the Greek word for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's our question, right? We hear about this coming and we go, okay, <laughs> Can I get a date, please? I'd like to know when he's a coming. Now, why do you want to know? Well, I think we'd want to know so that we'd be prepared, right? But we should be prepared in every generation. Every generation of Christians should live in the light of the second coming. And we all know that people have gotten themselves in big trouble when they try to pick dates. And Jesus himself said, no man knows the day or the hour. The angels don't know. He even said the Son doesn't know, only the Father. That's an interesting verse. We won't go there for right now. But that date is known to God, and it's actually fixed on God's calendar because Acts 17.31 says that God has fixed a day when He will judge the world in righteousness. And He's given evidence of this by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. So there is a day coming. It's known to God. The date is not known to us. And Paul says in verse 1, you don't need to know. Now, I want to give you some good news. I was uh, reading a paragraph by G. Campbell Morgan, who's a pastor of uh, a generation or two ago. He lived through World War I and II, and he said these words. I have no sympathy with people who tell us today that these are the darkest days the world has ever seen. The days in which we live are appalling but they do not compare with the conditions in the world when Jesus came into it. Historians talk of the Pax Romana and make much of the fact that there was peace everywhere, the Roman peace. Do not forget that Roman peace was the result of the fact that the world had been bludgeoned brutally into submission to one central power. Notwithstanding the prevailing conditions, the dominant note of these letters revealing the experience of the church is a note of triumph. The dire and dread facts and conditions are never lost sight of. Indeed, they are there all the way through. 
The people are seen going out and facing these facts and suffering because of these facts, but we never see them, the church, depressed and cast down. We never see them suffering from a pessimistic fever. They are always triumphant. That is the glory of Christianity. If, I, if ever I am tempted to think that religion is almost dead today, it is when I listen to the wailing of some Christian people, everything is wrong, everything is going wrong. Oh, be quiet, says Morgan. Think again, look again, judge not by the circumstances of the passing hour, but by the infinite things of our gospel and our God. And that is exactly what these people did. In fact, in both of these passages that Paul teaches about the return of Christ, he says, comfort one another with these words or encourage one another with these words. He doesn't say, be bummed out by these words. Leave church and look down for the rest of the week and don't even look up at anybody and just act like Eeyore. It's not much of a world, but it's the only one we've got. Now, come on, right? But I'll tell you, if I watch an hour or two of news, that's pretty much how I feel, <laughs> right? And that's why we've been warned to be careful about our news intake. We should keep up to date, but let's be careful that we don't become all bummed out by all the sensationalism going on. We know the Lord is coming. It could be in our lifetime, but it may not be. So whatever he decides to do, the question is, how shall we live? Because we don't know the times or the epics. The seasons or the dates, verse 1, ESV has seasons, NIV dates. Most scholars would say these two words have become synonyms for just dates and times. You have no need of anything to be written to you. There's no need. When Jesus was uh, appearing over a period of 40 days, the apostles in Acts chapter 1 said, Lord, is it at this time that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus, using the same words, said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority, Acts 1-7. But you shall receive power, Acts 1-8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Don't worry about when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. You do your job. What's your job? You're to be a witness of the things that you've heard and the things that you've seen. You go into all the world and you tell people about this glorious gospel. You don't need to worry about the dates and times. And anybody in any generation that has tried to pick a day and point to the calendar have one thing in common. They're all wrong. So be careful, brethren. And be careful with someone who thinks that they've figured it out. Now I will tell you this. Even though we don't know the specific date, we can have an idea of what will surround the second coming. And that's where we're going in these verses. Verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come. How will it come? Just like a thief in the night. Now, whenever you see the word like in a Bible verse, that's a simile word. It's like. It's giving you an illustration so you can compare it to something. And if a thief were to show up at your house in the night, they're not going to send you a text before they come, right? A thief will come at an opportune time, hopefully when they can have the advantage, when you might not expect them. We've heard of home invasion robberies, and those are scary, but we also know that thieves will try to pick a time when they won't get caught. 
an unexpected time or when nobody's home. Some years ago, uh, a gentleman tried to break into our home. He, uh, he pulled something out of my shed and he tried to jimmy open a French door we have on the side of the house and my neighbor was watching from across the street and thankfully, uh, before he got in, the police arrived and uh, they caught him. But he was knocking on doors in the neighborhood acting like he was looking for work and when he found a door where nobody answered, that's when he tried to break into the house. And the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be like a thief in the night. But I'm going to tell you, it's going to be like a thief only for those who don't know the Lord. And let me show you a parallel text. It's in uh, 2 Peter. So it's going to be all the way towards the back of your New Testament, 2 Peter. We're going to look at chapter 3 together. So several New Testament authors also deal with the day of the Lord or the return of Christ. And some of us are wondering, why has God taken so long to send Jesus to return? Amen? And there's times when we look at the world and we're like, Lord, isn't this a really good time? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Would you come now? You ever had one of those days, weeks, months, years? 2020 stinks, Lord. Come Lord Jesus. Right? And I feel you. But you know, if the Lord would have come in the first century when these uh, believers were living, ain't none of you going to be in the kingdom. And if the Lord would have come in the 70s, a lot of you would not be in the kingdom. And if the Lord would have come in the 90s, a lot of you would not have been in the kingdom. And some of you have just been saved in the last year or two, and you would have not been in the kingdom. And this is what Peter's going to talk about. Check it out. This is uh, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Thank you, Lord, for waiting for me. But the day of the Lord, there's that phrase again. That's our title. Second Peter 3.10 will come. Here's a repetition simile like a thief in which, here's what's going to happen. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, Peter tells us that in the last days, verse 3, same chapter, that mockers will come in their, with their mocking, following after their own lust, and they'll be saying, verse 4, where is the promise of his parousia, of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, says Peter, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time, if you're wondering if God has ever intervened in world history, was destroyed being flooded with water, a cataclysmic worldwide flood. But by his word, by God's word, the present heavens, the one that we live under, and earth, the one we live on, are being reserved for what? For fire. Now the first cataclysmic judgment came via water, this time by fire, and it's being kept for the day of judgment, here's the day of the Lord, and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day, and then the verses we read. 
Now, we have an application in verse 11, and here's what it says. It says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So just another way to say the day of the Lord. Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, what are we looking for, brethren? We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so this idea of the day of the Lord is a day of God's wrath this time not by water, but by fire. And the day of the Lord has been, if I can put it in human terms, delayed so that God can save as many people as he's determined to save. And that's in the counsel of God, and that's God's business. But we have had an interesting development happen in many of our lifetimes, if you turn back to 1 Thessalonians 5, and it is the return of Israel to the land. Because Israel is in the land, there are many uh, prophecies that connect with their return. Scholars of days gone by when Israel was not in the land did not think that this could happen or they, some, some people uh, went with a uh, spiritual interpretation or they tried to you know, spiritualize uh, uh, Israel, meaning the church and so forth. But I'll tell you this, we have an interesting development just to keep your eye on, and that is that Israel is back in their land. And that's something that we need to look at and just keep our eye on. So, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And it's going to be a radical day. In fact, it's going to be a day of utter destruction. And there are two major views. Some people believe that the earth, the present heavens and earth, will be completely destroyed and new ones will be made. And others believe that there will be a renovation of the current heavens and earth that will be purged by fire. Remember, the water and the fire are both elements for purging. And so that's a, it's a minor point, whether they go out of existence and they're created brand new or they are renovated. But Romans chapter 8 teaches an important truth that the present heavens and earth will experience a resurrection that is very much congruent or in keeping with our own bodily resurrection. So there are many scholars that believe that when the resurrection and rapture happens, talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, with that will happen a resurrection of the current heavens and earth. They'll be made new. They won't go out of existence, but they will get new form, if you will, or be made brand new and fresh. And if you want to read more on that, you can read Isaiah 65 and 66. Jesus said in Luke 12, 39 and 40, be sure of this, that the head of the house, if the head of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would have not allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Luke 12, 39 and 40. I remember when I was a younger believer, and I was really wrestling with being consistent in my walk, and I found myself going back to some of my old sins, sadly. Uh, about the first four years of my Christian walk, I sadly went back to my old ways several times, and when I did, I remember having nights when I knew this truth, and I was a little worried. 
that I might get caught in my sin. Everybody know what I'm saying? That I was messing around and not walking seriously with the Lord and I didn't want to be caught by surprise or caught off guard. I wanted to be alert. And to use the language here, I didn't want to be you know, under the influence of anything except the Holy Spirit. Now verse three is gonna give us some clarity about who this will hit as a thief in the night. It says in verse three, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs or travail or labor pains upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Now brethren, pay attention to the phrases here. It's they, them, and they. And you'll notice in verse four, but you are the contrast to they or them. And so this particular people group that will be caught unawares, caught off guard, caught like a thief breaks into the house, is not the church, it's the people who don't know the Lord. In fact, we're told that they're going to have a mantra in those days. They're going to be saying something in those days. And here's what they'll repeat. And Leon Morris says they'll be saying it because of the present tense of the language right up to the second coming of the Lord. They'll be saying peace and safety, peace and safety, peace and safety, peace and safety. Right up to the time that sudden destruction comes upon them. And this has been uh, part of the history of Israel where they would have false prophets, and you can write down Jeremiah 6 for your notes. This is one place where you'll see this. Who would say to the people, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They would say, peace and safety, if you will. Everything's going to be okay. No judgment is coming. It'll be fine. And the false prophets whispered to the leadership of the nation of Israel and said, no, judgment isn't coming. And the prophets that told the truth to the leaders of the nation, they were sometimes banished. They tried to kill them. They tried to burn the word of God. They didn't want to hear it. But the prophets that whispered, sweet little lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies, peace and safety, peace, peace, peace. God says, uh-uh, don't you do that when there is no peace. And there were times when prophets were coming to the nation of Israel warning about the Assyrian invasion and the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies. And the people were lied to by the false prophets. They believed the lie. And so it is important for us to know the word of God. Now I mentioned to you that there's eight different Old Testament prophets at least that deal with the day of the Lord. I'm going to show you one. It's in the book of Isaiah chapter 13. And as you turn there, Isaiah chapter 13, let me just explain a little bit of the dual nature of this phrase. In prophecy, there's often what's called near-far fulfillment. There's a fulfillment of a prophecy in the immediate life of the prophet or the immediate future of that generation. And then there can be a far fulfillment. We can see this in Psalm 22, Isaiah 9. There's many different places we see this. This also applies to the day of the Lord. So there were day of the Lord's in embryo. Let me explain. There were times when the day of the Lord was mentioned in language and it happened in the immediate setting of the warning. And so it was a type of the day a foreshadowing of the day, of the ultimate day. And one specific place I can think of is in the book of Joel where there's a locust invasion and it's described as the day of the Lord. 
And in the lifetime of those people, they experienced that locust invasion, and it became a picture of the future day of the Lord. In fact, some of the language is picked up, picked up in the book of Revelation, where there are locust-type creatures that go out and do some of the, the judgment or the wrath. And some of you have read that, and I think it's Isaiah, or, sorry, Revelation chapter 9. So there were day of the Lord's in embryo, or... Uh, foreshadowings of the ultimate day. This is one example, and this is the destruction of Babylon. Verse 1, Isaiah 13, you'll notice it says, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And then skip down to verse 6. Here's an example of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, seven, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will ride like a woman in labor. There's our image of the labor pains. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Just write in your Bible, Indiana Jones, right there. Now, how many of you saw that great scene when the ark is there and the, the Germans are trying to, they want to open the ark and see what's inside before they take it to their Fuhrer. And all of a sudden, the power of God comes on that scene. And remember, people, their faces turn on fire and faces melt. It's great cinema, great movie making. Good. Get them, Lord. Anyway, sorry. And you say, well, where, where, did, where did that come from? Who, made, who wrote the movie? Yell out the name for me. Spielberg, who's a Jew, by the way. So he got, he got some of his stuff from the Bible. By the way, the Bible gives specific ways to deal with the ark and to not look upon the ark. When Indiana and his, his girl are there and he says, don't look at it, that's, that's Bible stuff there coming into movie making. And then you, you remember some of the enemies, they look upon the ark, and, and oh, it's just wonderful, <laughs> wonderful stuff. Anyway, <laughs> you say, Pastor Michael, why'd you go there? Because you need to write that in your margin. It says, their faces will be aflame. <laughs> well, you can take that for what it's worth, whether you think it's literal or not. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. Now look at this. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make, a mortal, make mortal man scarcer than pure gold in mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Now, if you turn back to 1 Thessalonians, one thing that we notice in a lot of these passages is something that's called a cosmic disturbance 
in the heavenly bodies, sun, moon, and stars. Some people believe this is a literal lights out. Some people believe it's metaphorical language. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But let me just say this to you, that I've heard some people argue, oh, well, the language that's being used of constellation and stars is just simply a metaphor for judgment. It's not literal. But wait a minute. When God was bringing plagues upon Egypt, the ninth plague was a literal plague of what? Darkness. That lasted for three days. And it says it was a darkness that people could feel. Nobody even wanted to get up out of their house. But there was light in Goshen. And God brought the ninth plague, which, which was a plague of darkness for three days, followed by the day of the Lord, if you will, in embryo, or the Passover. So get this. This is just my view. As the Lord came in the first Passover, right after a plague of darkness, and judged Egypt, a type of the world, anybody who didn't have the blood of the lamb on their door experienced judgment, and it was a literal darkness. So the second Passover, when the Lord returns again, seems to have these same components. Everybody with me? And it was literal for Egypt. It wasn't a metaphor. The darkness wasn't, you know, not something real. It was a real darkness. And so this language about the sun not shining and constellations going dark and so forth, I would say we, we should take that literally. Verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 5. So the world's going to be saying peace and safety and they're going to be hit with labor pains. And I, I'm not sure that we connect this to what Jesus said about birth pangs in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. I think the image here is that when a woman gets hit with those labor pains and it's like, ooh, the baby's coming and there's no escaping the reality. <laughs> and all God's women said, amen. <laughs> Give me the shot, doc, I'll take it, <laughs> right? And so that's the image. It's like you're hit with it, ooh. And then what's going to happen next is inescapable. The baby's coming. And here, the wrath is coming. That's what's being said. And the world will be saying peace and safety. Everything's going to be fine. And destruction will come upon them suddenly. And they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, by contrast, that the day would overtake you like a thief. Now here's the good news. This is a verse to Mark. I know there was a movie that came out, Thief in the Night and all this stuff, and it related to the rapture, and is there going to be a secret rapture where everybody, you know, all of a sudden it happens and people are caught unawares. I'll let you wrestle with that. There's good people that have different views on the rapture. But this day will not overtake you like a thief in the night. Everybody just read that. It's not going to happen like that for you. You're going to know. So there are some things then, even though we don't know dates and times, that we could look for that will be surrounding this day. And we're going to look at some of those signs uh, as we go through First uh, and Second Thessalonians. But one of them is right here. There will be a mantra in the world saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. This is Luke 21, 34 through 36. Jesus says, be on guard. 
that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and the day come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those, Luke 21, 34 through 36, who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep alert, keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Now you might be saying, well, Pastor Michael, what are the things that would indicate that we could be near this time? What are we to look for? What does the Bible actually say? Because a lot of you have heard all kinds of different views and maybe speculations about things that would surround the second coming of Christ. Well, I'm going to take you to a few of passages where Jesus shares. The first one is Matthew 24. Let's take a look together. Matthew 24. Jesus gave many different uh, signs and he was asking a question, answering a question about the return that was asked by his disciples. But here's what he says, and this is, I think, um, some of the sections that we need to pay attention to in terms of just what we would look for. Matthew 24, 36 says, but of that day and hour no one knows, Matthew 24, 36, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man, Matthew 24, 37, will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, says Jesus, 38, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand, 39, until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now Jesus mentions the days of Noah. But when he talks about them, he doesn't mention the situation surrounding them that we read about in Genesis chapter 6. But here's a couple things that you need to know. In Genesis 6, 5, just write down, this down for your notes, it says that the thoughts of mankind were only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. Every thought that came into the average person's mind, they would twist into something evil. The whole world seemed to be saturated with moral evil. They couldn't even think pure thoughts anymore. Sound familiar? They were only evil continually. And then it says in Genesis 6:11 that the world was extremely violent at that time. So two thoughts. One, you have people only having evil thoughts. Their minds have been saturated with evil. They can only think of evil. And two, there was a lot of violence in the world at that time. Now, Jesus doesn't bring that up, though, so that's something we have to infer as we read the story. And maybe Jesus knew that it would be implied. I'll let you wrestle with that. But here's what we do know from Jesus' words, that people were doing everyday normal business. And Hebrews 11, I think it's verse 7, says that Noah, by faith, was building the ark and condemning the world. And there are many scholars that believe that it took Noah... Just a little while to build it. Uh, some believe 120 years. <laughs> hammer, hammer, hammer. Preach, preach, preach. Hammer, hammer, hammer. Better repent. The rain's coming. The flood's coming. The flood's coming. That crazy old man. He was the opening joke at every monologue on late night TV. There's Nutty Noah. He's at it again. Him and his son saying the world's going to be flooded with water. 
crazy, crazy Noah says God talks to him. Told him to build a boat. <laughs> I wonder if the flood's coming. Say that when you're off screen, when you're not on the air, when something in your heart tells you the world's a mess and there is a God. But they made fun of Noah, and Noah built the ark, and people were just going about their business, and there's extra biblical uh, writings that say that people were making fun of him. And, what are you doing, old man? But I'll tell you what, the old man was certainly happy when the flood came, and God shut the door. This is the language of the Bible. God shut the door, and the flood came and took them all away. Now, some people say, oh, come on! What do you mean a worldwide flood in Noah's Ark and those animal figurines I learned about in Sunday school? You pin them to the ark kind of thing. The, the giraffe is always there because he's tall. You can see him. You know, you can see out the window. Is that really real? Come on, Christian. Well, I'll tell you what. Jesus believed there was a flood. You believe him? Or the person that's been walking around the planet for 18 years that knows everything. Sorry if you're 18. Sorry, that was just... Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> Parents are like, amen. <laughs> so we have the world that mocks. But you know what? Jesus told us this is what's going on. Now notice... Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. 41, same chapter. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Some believe it's taken to rapture. Uh, some believe taken to judgment. I believe that this is the rapture. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be sure of this, here's the language, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave or servant whom his master uh, put in charge of his household to give them food at their proper time? Blessed is the slave or the servant whom his master finds doing so when he comes. One more from Jesus, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke 17. Same subject matter. Jesus brings up here the days of Noah, but he'll bring up another time. Luke 17, 26, it says, Just as it happened in the days of Noah, Luke 17, 26, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, 17, 27 of Luke. They were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all, Jesus speaking. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot, second illustration. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, let's park here for a second. It'll be just like the days of Noah, just like the days of Lot. I mentioned to you the days of Noah, by connecting Genesis 6, our days of only evil thoughts continually and days of violence. And then what characterizes the time of Lot? Gross sexual immorality. Unthinkable 
immorality to the degree that two angels have showed up in the town and the men are trying to tear the door down to get at them sexually. And that is the plain language of the text. They're trying to sleep with these guys. They want them to come out. So much so that Lot has to offer his daughters, sadly, so that these men don't try to come at these guys. And these guys are struck with blindness at the door. And you know what happens? They continue to grope around, still trying to get their desire fulfilled. Just like the days of Noah. Just like the days of Lot. And all God's people said, hmm. Because we start pulling back the veil of what's going on in this world and in our own country right now, and we go, wow. There, and of course, you know, I know things like this have always happened, but I'll tell you what, it is, we are on a slippery slope. And they were doing all this stuff. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, this is uh, 29, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let not the one who is in the house is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down to take them away. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. And then the warning, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life shall preserve it. Keep turning in Luke to 21 now. And uh, we're winding down. I'm going to show you just a few more. And uh, we'll sum it up and move into communion. Luke 21, look at verse 25. Jesus, this is the, the parallel with Matthew 24 of the Olivet Discourse. Here's what he says. There will be signs, Luke 21, 25, and in sun and moon and stars, there's that cosmic disturbance. On the earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men, Luke 21, 26, fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. It's not just the fig tree, brethren. Please notice that. Many people have made a lot about the fig tree and how the fig tree is Israel and Israel returned to the land and this date. I'd be careful with that because Jesus says it's not just the fig tree, it's all the trees. And this is simply just an image. Jesus is not, I don't think right here, talking about the return of Israel in 1948, and then you got to count a generation, and it's 40 years. And so somebody wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Returned in 1988. Eh, wrong. Thanks for playing. And then they said, oh, it's, it's 40 years. <laughs> Thanks, John the Beloved. It's an inside joke between he and I. Um, oh, it's 40 years from 1967. They, that's when they recaptured Jerusalem. 40 years from 67 is 07. It's 2007. That's what's going to happen. Eh, wrong. Thanks for playing. Show him what he lost, Johnny. Anyway, so, uh, yeah. So we have to be careful. And Jesus is just simply using an image of a tree to help us understand. It's the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they've put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. 
So you also, when you see these things happening, days of Noah, days of Lot, other warnings in the sermon, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation, the one that sees all the things that Jesus says in the sermon, will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Some of you need to mark that, the worries of life. And that day will not come, upon, come on you suddenly like a trap. And then something we read earlier, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. Keep alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and stand before the Son of Man. And the implication is stand guiltless, stand saved, etc. Now, more could be said, but I do want to show you one more. Uh, it's in 2 Thessalonians, so pass up where we were. Let me, I'm going to just wet your whistle with this one because I will teach in depth on it when we get there. But this is 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 2. And we're going to read 1 through 4. It says, Now, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the day of the Lord will not come unless two things happen. The apostasy comes first, that's the great falling away, and the man of lawlessness, many believe the Antichrist here, is revealed, who's the son of destruction or the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above every, above every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Now what I've tried to do is stack for you things that you could look for that are in your Bible that tell you about these days. So you're not shaken from your composure. So that you don't hear some sensationalistic message and believe, oh, here we are, it's going to end tomorrow. No. We need to take verses together and begin to build our eschatology, right? Our theology about what we believe about the end times. And, and I, I think you can see there's a lot to look at. And I've just begun to scratch the surface. I gave you about a third of my notes that I have up here right now. But I want to shift us to communion. And I said at the beginning that the Lord Jesus loved us so much. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians 5 that he came to die for us. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And he's coming again to get us. That's the gospel. Amen? And that's awesome news. And when we take the Lord's Supper, and brothers and sisters, um, let me just say, if anybody didn't get the elements and you're a believer and you want to partake, would you raise your hand and April will be happy to get them to you. Everybody got them? Okay, good. So when we take communion, and it's been a while, we'd, we've done this a few times when we were live streaming only, and I... Some of you did the best you could with what you had in the house and all of that. And, and I know the Lord is gracious to us all. But here we are with a chance to take the Lord's Supper. And this, I'll tell you, uh, 
has become more precious than I could imagine. Because who, who of us could have imagined that we would be at this place? And one of the things that we're told about taking the Lord's Supper is that it's reason to remember what he did for us. It's reason to celebrate his goodness to us. We need to do a little inventory to make sure that our hearts are right. And this is done in anticipation of his coming. We're to do this until the Lord comes. So I would ask you this morning that you would have an eye to his second coming as you take the bread and the cup. And I would ask you too, because we have people who are here in the courtyard and then people have joined us via live stream, is that if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I don't know why you would live one more moment without him. I really don't know why you would do that. If sins kept you away, if you've been disappointed and hurt, if you've walked away from the Lord and you've backslidden, come home. There is nothing that this world can offer that even comes close to knowing Jesus. Is the Christian life easy? Nope. But it's good, <laughs> and it's right, and it's true. And Jesus is coming again. So I would just encourage you to come to the altar if you have not met Jesus and accept him as your Lord and Savior. Now, before we take the elements, brethren, just let's take a moment. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup in like manner after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, as your people, remember Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We're so grateful for your rescue mission. And as we sing about coming to the altar, I pray that we'd come afresh, taking these elements, thinking about our great God and Savior, the blessed hope that we have, the good news of the gospel. And that will be about your business this week, Father, as we live in the light of Christ's return.